All right, welcome to Out of the Blue from the Block M Podcast Network, part of the Fan First Sports Network, a podcast that has inspired five movies, one album, and an off-Broadway play. Obviously, the 1995 classic Heavyweights being one of the movies. The other one might surprise you, Crazy Rich Asians. I'm Jared Stormer of the Block M Podcast Network. With me, as always, is Andy Bailey, my hetero life mate. Into you, Mongolian conqueror, with the lovemaking skills and horsemanship of a young Genghis Khan, but I'd like to see Genghis Khan diagnose a cover, too. How you doing, brother? <laughs> man knew his way around a bow and arrow, but couldn't identify or cover zero for anything. So I'm good, man. How are you? I'm great, man. That's why I always take you over Genghis in any type of historical redraft. That's a fact. I'm great, brother, but good to have you here after a banger last week. I think we got another banger this week. That's all we ever have. You know, at this point, we've been rattling them off. Uh, I love the interaction this week of you and I doing a quick historical redraft. I know you appreciated my uh, Jonas Salk deep cut. <laughs> That's a deep cut. You're going deep into the historical references there, into the texts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's the oh, man cured man. polio. Yeah, for those of you that don't know Jonas Salk, let's not uh, let's not just pass over him in historical texts. Just like Brett Bielma, who's going to get some coverage here tonight. Yes. Let's start with some quick hits, my friend. Uh, I want to touch on what we did on the podcast last week. Hence the Bielma reference. And and look, you know how we feel about Brett Bielma. When he dies, the autopsy is going to reveal that the inside of his heart looks like a catcher's mitt filled with goat cheese. But while he's here on this earth, the man can coach. We've got the Big Ten win totals from Vegas here. I want to look at this and look how we did here. I would say overall, we kind of nailed it. There's a couple things we're off on, though. What stood out to you about Vegas's take on the Big Ten next year compared to how we ranked it in last week's podcast? Like I said, we were pretty spot on with most things. I think the uh, IU being up there a little bit kind of surprised me, even at three and a half. But I think the most glaring one at first glance has to be Purdue at five and a half wins. Like I know the over-under, you want to try to get even action on both sides, but I don't see how Purdue gets to over five and a half wins. So you're telling me this team's going to be 500? Yeah, I, I cannot tell you that. I have no idea what the team's going to be. So that's an interesting one. Uh, we'll just run down it. They basically see it at Michigan, Ohio State, dead even at 10 and a half, being the over Penn State in third with nine and a half, Wisconsin fourth at nine and uh, Iowa whole game and a half back of them at seven and a half. That one surprises me a little bit. Maryland right there at seven and a half. I guess it's not so crazy to think <laughs> they might get the eight wins. Illinois behind them, but we, I mean, we kind of had that order there. Those were the two that we were flip-flopping. Then Minnesota, Nebraska, Michigan State, Purdue, Indiana, Northwestern. Rutgers doesn't even have a win total posted. So not, not even bettable. <laughs> Poor Rutgers, man. It's just going to be tough sledding for them. Uh, as you read through those, another one that stands out to me is the Iowa disrespect. I can't believe I've been forced into a corner to be an Iowa defender, but uh, I have an article coming out tomorrow like ranking the Big Ten coaches, and what I learned is Kirk Ferentz is more likely to win 10 games than he is to win less than eight. So the betting odds would be under that and say them at seven. And again, having uh, Wisconsin so far ahead of them just does not make sense yet with being so unproven. I completely agree. That's what stands out to me. I would take the Iowa over seven and a half. I would take the Wisconsin under nine. Obviously, Michigan over ten and a half. We feel pretty good about this team. So you could do that as well. Um, the Purdue one, five and a half wins. Michigan State, same win total projection, five and a half, uh, which feels right. I mean, it's going to be four, five, or six. I don't see it being outside of those that win total. Uh, Nebraska, they put right in the middle 
at six just because they have no idea what to expect from much like we didn't. So, yeah, we were pretty close on this one. I would say that uh, we kind of covered the ones that really stand out. I would not as much as I was like Maryland over Illinois. I still wouldn't bet the Maryland eight wins. Yeah, if I were to bet on Maryland, I'm taking the under because seven and a half is such a sneaky good line because like getting to eight for them seems like a stretch. Like you could even see seven if you're optimistic, but even you were like eight, it's like some things really got to turn your way. But so that that line is set very accurately. Uh, the uh, Another line, the, uh, Minnesota at six and a half. I like the under on that one as well. Yeah, Minnesota's got to replace a lot, a lot of seniors going out of that program, but uh, I like when we did this, and I like that the Vegas win totals came out right after because we can see how well we were gauging the conference, and we were pretty much spot on. We had Penn State ahead of Ohio State. Um, the fact that they are still kind of favoring Ohio State and a lot of the Vegas models to make the playoffs like and have a better season than Michigan, and basically they're saying they think Ohio State's going to beat Michigan just shows that they are really, really rooted in what happened over the last 20 years and not looking at what happened over the last two. And they're not ready to believe that the balance of power has shifted. But those of us that have watched, uh, you know, Michigan versus Ohio State 21 and 22, the the original and the sequel, we know that the, the tides have for sure turned. So we obviously feel a lot better about that. Yeah, current odds on FanDuel for the national championship next year. Ohio State is six to one. Uh, Michigan is ten to one. So again, just goes to show where they still believe it. It's funny to me because last year was advertised as game of the century. You know, undefeated versus undefeated. This big clash. Michigan doesn't even have their best player, and was at Ohio State and came away with a decisive victory. I mean, I don't right. understand it, but I mean, I like it for the purposes of my wallet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be betting on that game. I mean, granted, it's, you know, looking at the the past history, I guess that's what they're doing here, the 20-year the stretch rather than the two-year stretch. But looking at the rosters, you and I just don't see it that way. I don't care that you have Marvin Harrison and Emeka Obuka. That does not matter to me. You know, th- this game is going to be one in the trenches, and uh, I like our chances there. But that was kind of fun to look at there. Um, let's let's move on here. Um, another thing that happened here, Hunter Dickinson's officially gone. I mean, this is a weird one that I don't I don't know that you and I will ever be able to fully understand our our feelings on Hunter Dickinson. They're very conflicted, but he is now uh, going to Kansas. That is official and came out on a podcast and said he was making less than six figures a year at Michigan and was kind of like roasting or trying to clap back at the people that were saying he was disloyal for leaving. It's so weird. This just adds the complexity of how I feel about him because to go to Kansas and make a million dollars rather than stay at Michigan and make 70,000, like it's also hard to really hate on him for that. What are your thoughts on that statement? Yeah, I think he's a scumbag. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really interesting to me, like the comments he made about not making six figures and Blake Corum last year on the Bustin' with the Boys podcast talked about he was well over six. And my advice to Hunter Dickinson is don't have 13 and six and lose to Central Michigan. You might see more money yeah. than that. I mean, if the basketball program is in a better state, again, you might see more money than that. And it's just, it's very funny to me, like from where college athletics has gone in the last 10 years to being like, I'm making under six figures. I can't stay here. Like, it's so funny to hear it. Like, so have these archaic memories of certain things of like amateurism and all of that. But I don't know, Hunter, just, just, I don't know, be more consistent, be better at your job and you would get paid more money is my just natural like response to this. Well, you and I don't really love Draymond Green, and most of it's because of off-the-court antics. Like, on the court, the guy's obviously super impactful, but then he immediately hops on a podcast, and he's like, I'm riding for LeBron James the rest of these playoffs. We're just like, what? Imagine if, like, 
That is a loser mentality. Like, imagine if we like go to the Big Ten championship, get knocked off by Iowa. Knock on wood, it'll never happen. But like, and then uh, Donovan Edwards is like, "Yeah, I'm going to watch Iowa in the playoffs." Like, we'd be like, "The hell you are, sir!" Like, we're not doing that. So, yeah, Hunter Dickinson, just like the way he does it, the way he goes about it, he might be right. Like, I would take a million to go play for Kansas too. But the bigger question here is if there's a big disparity happening between the NIL that we have going to our football program and the NIL money we have going to our basketball program. That makes sense. I know how much money the football team brings in, but do we need to really up our commitment there to the basketball team? It's interesting to use the word commitment there because I know a big thing with the Hunter Dickinson decision about where he wanted to transfer to was like the guaranteed money. Like he wanted it basically like to have it not be incentive laid. And so maybe Michigan is more, you know, with the four competitors only mantra. It's like, I don't know. It's, could be incentive laced. It could be something different. But again, this team has not been good the last two years in the regular season. Like you got to produce more than that, especially compared to the football team. I'm sure the NIL situation wasn't good in the beginning, coming off the 2020 season, the way everything was lining up. You kind of have to earn that right. And just to like stomp your foot and cry about not making money after you lost to a max school and you played pathetic in the game kind of feels iffy to me like I want my money no matter how good I play like I want to be paid as much as I want to and like do bad at my job but it's not the way the world works hard to say he's bad at his job I mean he was ranked as the most impactful turn yeah consistency is the question I think he's going to be good at Kansas and it's going to be really annoying but what happens in the tournament you know when things get really dicey and people start attacking him I don't know we'll we'll see there but yeah, and, and it, look, if you look at Kansas as just an overall, the school and the athletic department versus the Michigan athletic department, Kansas is basketball and really not much much else. Michigan has a lot. like So that NIL money needs to kind of trickle to a lot of different places. And where are we really getting the most of, you know, of that revenue that's coming from our football program? So it's just comparing apples to oranges a little bit, I think. Like Kansas is probably able to focus a lot of NIL money towards basketball because it's all they have. But I can't also, you know, the other side of it, like I said, and like I opened with is I can't fault a guy for going to make a million dollars if you don't know you're going to make it to the NBA and like guaranteeing yourself a tournament run when a, a tournament run with Michigan was all but guaranteed, not guaranteed, you know, next year. There was no way to know what was going to happen. God, how long was Michigan's scoring drought against Vanderbilt? I get it. I get it. <laughs> it's just, I don't, it's very weird behavior. It's just saying like, uh, if I don't play, if I play up and down, like I want all of this money and the team does, I mean, what sense does it make this team had two lottery picks on it and Hunter Dickinson and couldn't make the NCAA tournament? Like, could it be a Hunter Dickinson issue? Could it be the opposite of the Ewing theory? Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's very interesting to me. He's the one making the demand for the money like this. Like, pay me more. Like, he's making under like six figures. Was it 90,000? Was it 10,000? That's a big discrepancy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when you kind of wish you knew a little bit more about how NIL money was being used and like how we were divvying this out. So without knowing that, it's hard to really talk too much about it. I'm just not really like ready to shit on him for the decision because look, like what we had last year should have been better. And if this is a Jawan Howard problem, which we're probably going to find out next season, I would say that with certainty, we'll know by the end of next season if this is a Jawan Howard problem or not then, you know, if he was just ahead of the curve on that and he's like, this coach doesn't have it, the players on the roster don't have it, there's too much turnover, Bufkin is leaving, Jet Howard's leaving, like he could end up being proven right. And like, it'll be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of Michigan fans. If he goes to Kansas and makes the final four, has an awesome season, makes a million dollars and Michigan's in the NIT again. 
Could be. That's a lot of ifs we got to get through first. And Kansas does have some pieces to replace with him. And I think the biggest thing is Hunter just naturally off the court is unlikable. He was one of the hardest Michigan players to defend the last few years and can openly say that. Like, defended him because he wore the maize and blue. But if he had played for any other school, he would have been one of our, like, favorite objects of derision. Like, the jokes Mm -hmm. write themselves for Hunter Dickinson. Like, he's not a great likable guy. He's not a good hang. So, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see the way he, like, interacts with his teammates at Kansas and how his – larger-than-life personality and podcasts go over at Allen Fieldhouse with Bill Self and that team. Yeah. Are you willing to just be a part of a team? Because Kansas is not that type of program where they want one guy just being the face of it if it's not Bill Self. You know, that's yeah. it's going to be a dramatically different environment for him. Uh, on the basketball topic, Michigan just tonight, we're recording on a Sunday night, got a commitment from 2024 point guard from Catholic Central. We've now had a Central Catholic and a Catholic Central commit to Michigan in the last week. Neither one of them are the Central Catholic that that I know and love out of Toledo, Ohio. But this is Dural Brooks, 6'2 point guard, um, you know, top 150 player. We now have two players committed for 2024, both guards. It's hard for me to get excited about any of these guys because so much is riding on the season when, like, we're not going to see these guys. So, like, there's a high likelihood these guys transfer if this Jawan Howard season doesn't work out. So, great commitment. We'll see if he even plays a minute in the maize and blue. Yeah, isn't his nickname, like, Fat Fat or something? I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, that's his nickname. His nickname is Fat Fat, PH on both of those. Um, Yeah, this is good news. The basketball team is kind of gaining some momentum on the recruiting front for the first time in a while. It made the top eight for a uh, John Bull, a 7'2 center. Only been playing basketball for four years. Plays for Jason Tatum's dad down in St. Louis. So uh, finally getting something going, like building a little bit organically. And that's really what the team has been missing. Just kind of been doing more patchwork through the portal the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we'll see if these guys end up being anything. So much rides on this Michigan basketball season that we have absolutely no idea what to make of. So uh, glad that he committed to the Wolverines. Hopefully it ends up being a guy. Uh, A.J. Henning made his decision. He is going to Northwestern, which I randomly and kind of just low-key. It's not even low-key. I high-key love this. Like, Northwestern's a program I have no problems with. They're not beating anybody, so it's not (laughs) like he's going – Not like he's going to somebody that's going to challenge us at any point. And they can like script their offense around him because he immediately becomes one of their best playmakers on offense. Yeah, a hundred percent. You and I both like Pat Fitzgerald. Like it's just, I mean, it's not a secret. Like we've always sung his praises and it's a very hard place to win. But yeah, and Henning's going to go going back close to home, gets to be there and show out. He's going to be a focal point of that offense. And, you know, maybe, maybe Fitz turns it around this year. I mean, don't make no mistake. It's not a coincidence that only three teams have been to the Big Ten Championship twice in the last five years. And that's Michigan, it's Ohio State, and that's Northwestern. It doesn't happen by accident. It's just you look at his coaching trajectory, and there, there are some bad seasons, and none worse than the last two. The back-to-back runs have been really bad. So they need a win on the recruiting trail because things are only getting harder, both in the West and the East. So, yeah, we talked about this last week, so I don't really want to go back down on, on like the, the program trajectory and the hierarchy here. But this is good for Northwestern, and it's good for A.J. Henning. Like we thought last year he was going to be like a focal point. We heard the Debo Samuel thing. We saw it in the spring game, which is why I bet big on him last year. We're like, oh, they're making a concentrated effort to get AJ Henning the ball in unique ways. That did not play out during the season. But, you know, he needs to be able to be better at being a receiver if you want to be a wide receiver. That's kind of the thing. 
AJ Henning's got a lot of work too in a lot of different areas. They they even used him in that wide back look in one of the non-conference games. And there's a wide open hole to his right, but he just ran like right into the middle and just fell over. And it's like, oh boy. And they never went back to it because it was so egregiously bad. And again, you know, being a receiver, you should also be able to catch the ball consistently, which has been an issue for Mr. Henning. So hoping for the best for him, man. They're not on Michigan's schedule next year. So love to see him ball out in the purple and black. Go ball out, man. Be great over there at Northwestern. Uh, NHL lottery results. I know you're secretly happy about this. You're a Blackhawks fan uh, for all your sins. I don't know why that <laughs> happened, but there it is. You get Connor Bedard after just having an egregious tanking season. But the more important thing for this podcast is the uh, Anaheim Mighty Ducks, uh, last relevant in the Mighty Ducks series in 1994 and 1996. Uh, they get the second pick. So what does this mean for Adam Fantilli? It was like Christmas for me, man, you know, as a, a closet Blackhawks fan, because I'm surrounded by Red Wings fans. I wasn't trying to gloat, but it was like it was a very good moment for me. And also with number two, it means very likely Adam Fantilli could be returning to Michigan. It's still kind of up in the air because like the good case, the, the case for him leaving is what more does he have to like learn and grow at Michigan? Like he is ready. He just dominated as a 17, 18 year old. He's ready to go. Other cases. Maybe he wants the national title and maybe he wants to wait one more year for the Ducks to maybe get another draft pick and do it so he doesn't have to go there and just like suffer through a terrible season in Anaheim. So a lot to weigh here, but definitely in favor of him returning now with the Ducks having the second pick. Right. Yeah. Because if it's Chicago, I mean, maybe you look at it a little bit differently or if yeah. someone moves up, that's in a little bit better position. I mean, if the Red Wings move up, that's that would have certainly been interesting. But that just doesn't happen for the Red Wings. They've no. been bad for several years and I don't think they've picked above like seventh. Yeah, it's just been been rough luck for them. Uh, man, the, the lottery, NHL and NBA lottery are a brutal, brutal business. So much comes down to something that is just cannot be decided on the court. Are you pro or anti lottery? Kind of indifferent. Like, I mean, I, it's, I'm in the camp of it's kind of always been that way. So I've just kind of accepted it. I think uh, with tanking, especially in hockey and basketball, like they could game the system if it were more traditional, like the NFL, which is a lot more difficult to tank in. So I think you have to do something like this. I don't know if you limit the lottery to like six or do it that way, but I'm kind of open to anything if you think it could improve it. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that the uh, the process, as it was coined by the Sixter, Sixers and what was that, Sam Hinkie? Was that yep. the name of the guy that was doing it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really kind of ruined the entire process and has made it so that you almost have to have a lottery. Because if you're going to have four years of absolute just utter despair for your team and come away from it with Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, who became like Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid and Nerlens Noel, and like you just got ousted by the Celtics – and like you made, you're probably gonna have to fire your coach. Like that was a disastrous experiment. And it was all based around the fact that we can just tank our way into being building a good team. Nobody wants that. It's bad for the product. So like, I think that you almost have to have it in place. But then at the same time, for these small market teams that are trying to claw their way out that can never get a big free agent signing, it also seems like pretty desperate, you know, and I wanted to transition this to the Pistons because the NBA lottery will happen on Tuesday. Uh, this podcast will come out on Tuesday, so we will know. And I mean, with the NBA, it's similar to like the NHL this year. You're going to know the top five guys off the board. It's going to happen in some order. And like somebody's going to get this Wembenyama kid and it's going to change their franchise. Uh, you know, somebody's going to get Scoot Henderson at number two and it could change their franchise. And then a bunch of other people are going to have to take dice rolls, you know? So the lottery is just like extremely consequential and it's imperfect but I'm kind of with you that like 
does anyone have a better idea? It's very interesting right now, though, looking at the four teams remaining in the NBA. Look at their draft picks. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. have not done it that way. Like the Heat have been very savvy with like building by like building these lower like ranked players and developing them and then making moves in free agency. Same thing with the Lakers, been making all those savvy moves and trades. Nuggets very organic, like drafted Jamal Murray pretty high. I think he was the second or third pick. And then you got Jokic in this late second round, then he became what he is. And then of course you have the Celtics who like had Tatum on their side. So I guess it's kind of the balance. So you have people that drafted up high and you have the teams that did it in free agency. So there's more than one way to win. I think that was the, one of the things that came out of this, uh, the 76ers failed process was you had all these picks and all these tanking seasons to make one conference finals. That, that was it. That, that was the end game here. So it's just very interesting to see how it's going to go. I mean, maybe you limit it. Maybe you like game it certain ways. Like you shrink the lottery. I don't know what you do. I'm not that upset against it though, man. Like I'm not one of these people that's outraged and calling everything fixed when things don't go my way. Cause I mean, things didn't go my way. So we got the first pick. Exactly. And uh, you can be outraged, but like, as soon as it goes your way, like it, it, it you complete it's completely removed. Pistons already got Cade Cunningham there. And yeah, like you mentioned, the teams that are still in the NBA playoffs, the Lakers have two number one draft picks on their team, but neither one they took. Um, Jamal Murray was taken seventh, not third in the, in that draft. And Jokic was like, what, 42nd? He was in the second round, something like that. I guess so Celtics like were the only ones that did it that way. Yeah, Celtics were the only ones that, and they hit on both of them. And if you can hit on your top five guys, that's what the Pistons are trying to do is like have a couple years in the top five, hit on hopefully two of the three. And you've got guys that are either stars or borderline stars, or at least guys that can be playable in the playoffs. So um, Pistons now have a 14% chance at the number one pick. Odds are they have like a 42% chance at the number five. So obviously at number one, you would want Wembenyama, I'm assuming. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, have, I have no pushback, <laughs> nothing besides yeah, the fact he's yeah. French. Yeah, he is French. We got to be cautious <laughs> of that. Uh, at number two, what should they do, though? Scoot Henderson, not a position of need with Jaden Ivey and Cade Cunningham looking like really strong positions there in the backcourt. It's it's always very tough. Like when you're a team this bad, like you always want to just take best player available, I feel like, because mm-hmm. you fall into like the classic example is the Blazers didn't take Jordan because they had Clyde Drexler. And it's like you have all these right. other things. It's like you could move one of them. So I think however your evaluations is, whether it's Brandon Miller, but you have all the other issues to worry about with him. I mean, where would you go on that? Where do you lean? So Scoot Henderson, I don't think is like you compare him to other small lead guards. And first of all, it's very difficult to win with a lead guard being the center of your offense. That's like six, three or below that. I mean, he could defend. I think he can defend. So let's say he's Davion Mitchell. He doesn't shoot like Davion Mitchell. So I struggle to see him being a guy that we should add into an offense that really can't shoot and need shooting right now, unless you're trading Ivy, but then you're trading Ivy who actually shot better from three than we anticipated. So you're getting worse with your shooting for a guy that's shorter because he's more explosive and like long defensively. I don't like it. I would maybe try to package that with Bojan Bogdanovic and maybe trade for Pascal Siakam. I would maybe try to move down and and get more draft ammo, or I would just take Brandon Miller at two. How do you see it? I'm very torn, man. Like the Brandon Miller off the court stuff really worries me like being like that and like everything. And then kind of the no show, the NCAA tournament also worries me. Like the Mm -hmm. last glimpse we had of him was not good. So I'm more in favor of like, you don't want to load up the backcourt like that. Maybe you trade down, 
maybe you do something like that. But it's like I would go, I would either go scoot in that position, or like I said, trade down, get some ammo, or try to package it and like add a veteran that way. I like it a lot too. So say uh, Orlando stays put and has pick seven eleven, we get pick number two. Would you trade number two for pick seven and eleven from Orlando? Because I certainly would. I mean, you're helping out a somebody in conference, which is dangerous. Another team that's on the rise. But I might take that gamble. How do you feel about the next tier of picks in this draft? And that's the problem is there's going to be some of these guys that do not hit. There's going to be some of these guys that uh, could be out of the league. But then there's probably a star somewhere in this four to five range. Um, So odds are we get the fifth pick. How do you feel about Cam Whitmore from Villanova? Um, I dove in a little bit on him. Um, Brandon Miller has some problems creating his own shot in the half court. Like he does not drive like a Paul George. I've heard the Paul George comparisons also, like you mentioned, kind of shut down in the NCAA tournament. So there's concerns with him. Whitmore is being as athletic as he is. I'm willing to buy into that with his size, with the Villanova pedigree. I would probably be pretty on board with Cam Whitmore as the pick four or five. If he's there. I've tend to like the Villanova players the last several years. I mean, with the Jay Wright pedigree, it's really interesting looking back now at the 28 team that Michigan lost to featured Jalen Brunson, Mikel Bridges, and Dante DiVincenzo. Like, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, we're we're going to lose that. We had Jordan Poole. Sweet. So makes sense. We're going to talk lost. about him. <laughs> so I, I'm in favor of that. I, I like that evaluation. I watched a little bit of Nova this season, not too much, but if you're going to get some value there, I think that's a smart, savvy pick to add to the team. Other guys in discussion would be Taylor Hendricks, the UCF, um, really pretty dominant freshman there that I would really like. He provides some shooting and some defensive upside. Jarris Walker from Houston, kind of just like a better version of what Isaiah Stewart is on defense. I think that might be a little redundant there. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm maybe looking to trade down if you fall into that four or five range. Maybe can you get your pick back from, uh, you know, from New York and trade back or something? I don't know, something creative like that. Troy Weaver, I, I do think, is probably the second best in GM in Detroit right now. Maybe the third. We'll see what Iserman does with this NHL draft. So I'm going to trust him on this one. It's a tough spot to be in if you don't get one or two, though, I think. If you don't get one or two, it's like, I don't know how good Pistons are going to be this year. We might have to, to tamper down our expectations a little bit. We also have pick 31. And, I mean, Jalen Brunson went 32. There's been some players that go right there at the top of the second round. So I don't know if there's any players you had your eye on there. What about Amani Bates if he falls? Would you want to take that swing? If you're down there, you might as well. I feel like there's been a lot more hit, a better hit rate at those like high second rounders, late first rounders, and there has been at like the six to 10 picks. I feel like everyone mm-hmm. just over evaluates them and you talk yourselves into like book night being like Dwayne Wade. It's like, yeah, not that. He's not that guy. So it's like there's always the uh, uh, paralysis by analysis, especially with NBA players because there's so much projection involved. And it's like, oh, look at the inside dribble off his right foot with his finger on the W of the Wilson logo of the ball. Like that translates so well to the next level. Like in December, he's going to be a guy. So it gets a little silly sometimes. So I wouldn't mind taking a swing with Imani Bates like late late in the first, early in the second. Yeah, I mean, you could do worse than that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Book Knight actually went five and Wagner went several picks later. Lots of teams really, really kicking themselves for the Wagner pick. Like, do you think that uh, the Warriors, who just exited early to the Lakers, wouldn't have enjoyed Franz Wagner to throw out there on LeBron James? 
yeah, Franz on that team is frightening what he could do or the fact that they like, it's always forgotten like in this Warriors run. It's like, this is the first time, you know, Steve Kerr's lost in the Western playoffs. Like, well, yeah, they also had that one year they just didn't make the playoffs and they had a top draft pick and just whiffed on it. Like they took Wiseman second overall and you had so much other, anybody, you could have put Tyrese Halliburton on this team. And what does that do for the, that was that for the Warriors? I mean, honestly, I'm so thankful they missed on, they could have gone Halliburton Franz and then just like the dynasty continues. And I would have hated that. So, I mean, we lucked out because this dynasty is probably coming to a close. Um, That's a good transition point though. So who is your favorite current? Like we're just talking about, you would like to tune in and watch their game or you would like them on the Pistons or you're like, that's a guy I would want to pay the contract if you were a GM. Which current Michigan Wolverine player is your favorite in that respect in the NBA? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, not Jordan Poole, tell you that much. That, well, we're going to get into that here in a minute. <laughs> as somebody with eyesight, yes, I can assure you it is not Jordan <laughs> Poole. Um, it, it's got to be Franz. It's, it's, it's got to yeah. be Franz, like running away. Like what he does and like his ceiling, what, what his handle with his height, just everything he brings is everything you want in a player. Like I just think he's like the – prototype I mean he's an NBA player that can play on any team and he makes them better yep I agree he's number one um what about at number two Hardaway Jr.'s contract uh is still a little bit rich that one should be ending but then you've got Duncan Robinson who is at hang on I've got it right here Duncan Robinson is at currently about 16 he's going to average about 19 million till the 25 26 season which is a lot he's a 19 million year a guy but I mean considering what some of these other guys are making Duncan Robinson not too bad the Tim Hardaway contract the Karis LeVert contract who do you got at number two that's tough. That's that's really tough because I mean, even there's some some Mo Wagner love out there because he's super cheap with the Magic. Um, uh-huh. With Duncan though, man, like right now, like he, I believe he's the 96, 94th highest played player in the NBA. So it's not like he's in the top ten or anything with his contract. And he's shown value in the playoffs. Like when he hits, I mean, they trust in him a lot. Like he's not a great one on one defender, but he understands rotations as well as anybody on the court and plays for the best coach in the NBA. So, like, he understands a lot what's going on out there, and he gives you great effort. So I think I would lean Duncan Robinson next. I love that you said the best coach in the NBA. I'm pushing that agenda right now. Spolstra (laughs) probably is the best coach in the NBA right now. Um, I agree with you. So that brings us to the discussion I wanted to have. Jordan Poole, if you would have offered this before the season, like, would you rather have Jordan Poole or Duncan Robinson? I think that it would have been a no-brainer you want Jordan Poole. They locked him up for a gargantuan deal, Golden State did. Four years, $128 million. It's increasing. It doesn't even kick in until next year. Next year is when he starts getting paid. And to give you some context on just how bad Jordan Poole was in these playoffs, of 92 eligible players in effective field goal percentage, he's 90th. Of 94 players eligible in just overall field goal percentage, he's 93rd. You want to know the only player below him? Yes, of course. Dylan Brooks. <laughs> and at least Dylan Brooks <laughs> plays defense. Dylan Brooks is second team all defense. Jordan Poole averaged 10.3 points per game in 22 minutes. He shot 25% from three. He was 96th of 107 eligible players that took three pointers in the playoffs. I mean, just dead last in everything. He's also statistically in the top five worst defenders in the NBA. In the NBA, not just in the playoffs, just total across the NBA. The Jordan Poole contract 
And I mean, I'm not just saying this because you and I were never like pool believers. He's a Michigan guy, hit a huge shot for Houston. Like I'm going to get behind him if there's cause to get behind him. This is a tough look for Jordan Poole. Like he arguably has one of the worst contracts in the league. This is bad, man. And like the most recent optics of it all with the series, the Lakers coming to an end are going to make this offseason very intriguing because he looks horrible right now. Was virtually unplayable in this series because he was as big of a negative on defense as he was on offense. And you can't have that because his whole thing is he has to be good on offense. Like he has to be hitting the threes. He was supposed to be the heir apparent to Clay Thompson because everyone knows Thompson's on his last legs there. It's supposed to be he and Steph, the guys. And no, someone tweeted that he looks like he plays basketball. Like Steve Kerr spun him like around in a circle six times and sent him out there. And I can't unsee it. Like that's, he just plays so sporadic and out of control. Like it's like an actor was cast in a movie where he didn't belong. It's like you put like Will Ferrell and Saving Private Ryan. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing here? This doesn't make any sense. And that's what he looks like on the basketball court with him. He just stands out like very awkward. Yes, incredibly awkward. Spent half a million dollars on a date with Ice Spice, who's essentially Ronald McDonald with curves. Uh, I don't really, I didn't really see that. But I mean, hey, good on you. You got paid. So like, we were going to take like a small victory lap on like Jordan Poole not being like a, a well-rounded NBA player. But we can't because he got paid. Like he went in and had a good enough season to get paid. But these are the concerns that when he left Michigan, we're like to be a player that I would want on my team. Like he has so long to go. He has such a long way to go. He's only like, what, 23? He can certainly get better. He's super young. He can get better. Like we're not just saying this is like truly garbage. Like what a waste. Like you just tanked your franchise. But you might have. You might have really handicapped your franchise because like Clay Thompson was at his apex, a really strong defender. Jordan Poole is so, so far away from that. Like Franz Wagner is what? Like. I mean, I would start Franz Wagner in a playoff series over Jordan Poole 10 times out of 10 right now. Franz Wagner was a rookie this year. Absolutely. I mean, you have, he was rookie last year, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Last year, I mean, it was yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, so My it's bad. Like, second season. Second it's Franz just brings you so much positive, like positives on the court. Like if Poole's not scoring, he's not going to make it up in other ways. Like Franz can rebound, defend, steal, and it's just it looks so glaringly bad on the Warriors because like the the narrative used to be on Steph that he couldn't defend, but Steph is actually a very good and willing defender at a lot of times mm-hmm. despite being six three. And it's like Jordan Poole really has no reason not to be, but he just plays so out of control and out of sync. Like, I want to see him improve because you and I were so happy to be wrong because coming out of Michigan, we're like, I don't see it. He still needs a lot of room to develop. Went to the best place you could dream of going and seemed to be taking the strides. But ever since he got punched in the face by Draymond, I mean, this season was a struggle to watch him and it was just the epitomized in the playoffs. Yeah, and I mean, when you're getting baited by Dennis Schroeder and D'Angelo Russell into just dumb offensive fouls, like, they've got you. They've got your number, bro. Like, they are <laughs> targeting you. Yeah, and uh, maybe the the actual best place you could go would be Miami, where Duncan Robinson ended up. And earlier on this season, uh, Bill Simmons, a podcast we listened to almost religiously, talked about him having one of the worst contracts. We just mentioned it's about $19 million, uh, going through 2025, $16 million this year. Duncan Robinson, in the playoffs averaging 8.2 points per game on 44% three-point shooting, 42% field goals overall. Puts him kind of in the middle. He's uh, above the middle in three-point shooting, although three-point shooting in the playoffs, there's like Rui Hachimura shooting like 60%. There's some weird numbers out there, but he's getting 18 minutes a game, so he's just behind pool and minutes per game, and 
I, I totally agree with you that while he might get targeted on defense, he's not a liability on defense. He's not unplayable on defense. He just gets targeted. If you have an out of bio to, to protect him, you can get away with Robinson minutes. So this was being talked at as an albatross contract. It does not look that way right now. No, not in the play in the regular season. Like I could understand the case more, but it's like, it shows up now. And also he's a guy that, doesn't get bummed out about not having playing time, understands the rotation. Like I hate the phrase heat culture. It's been so just corrupted and I don't even know what to do with it, but it, it's speaking in spades right now. Like what that team, they really just buy into the team first concept and he could play no minutes or he could play like 30 minutes. And it really wouldn't surprise me on a given night. And there's just so much like just so many good things in place for them. Like it was really nice the other day to see Duncan go off for 17 and just texting you like, Duncan Robinson game, Duncan Robinson game. Just so happy to see him back on the court having a moment. And I wanted to have that with Jordan Poole, but it just never happened. Of these, oh, actually, you know what? We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to throw this in. We got some superlatives, some rapid fire, which we haven't done in a minute. Love throwing this at you. I know you're always prepared. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the moments last season that went under the radar. We're doing the diligence. We're out here grinding the tape. We got some fun moments from last season that maybe are forgotten. We're going to get right into that once we come back from this break. Support for this episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Breaking news, people. Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right. They are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shape your signature beard look. Now you can finally use Manscaped products to make your drapes match your carpets by going to manscaped.com and using the code MNB20 for 20% off and free shipping. Look, I'm a man that knows the importance of a beard. The beard ties the face together like a good rug ties a room together. It's the unifying bridge between chin and scalp. I've yet to see a man's face made worse with a strong beard in my lifetime. It's the only facial hair that will never go out of style. It's time to tame your mane because no one likes a weird beard. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with Manscaped Pro Beard Kit. All starts with the Beard Hedger. Thing is a beast of fixing faces. First off, the cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths all with one guard. So no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. Plus, it's waterproof so you can shave in the shower to avoid all that hair in the sink. The titanium-coated T-blade is tough on hair but smooth on your face, leading to single-stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time. The Pro Kit doesn't end there, though. They've created four dermatologist-tested formulations for your post-trim care. There's the beard shampoo and conditioner. You need to remember all your hair is different. Your beard hair is more coarse, easier to damage than your hair on your head. That's why this kit has made shampoo and conditioner specifically designed to moisturize, reduce ingrown hairs, replete those natural oils and promote beard health. Next, the kit has Manscaped's beard oil, an essential piece for your main facial accessory. No one wants a beard who's brittle and dry. The oil relieves dryness both on the beard and the skin beneath while adding a little shimmer and shine, making you look extra fine. Cap off the kit with the beard balm pomade shape style moisturize tame your sculpted look. Pro Beard Kit also comes with three free gifts, a beard brush, comb, and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code MNB20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code MNB20. Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 length. 
good people listening to Out of the Blue need to take a moment to shout out our sponsors for this podcast, Home Field Apparel. In case you aren't familiar and you've been living in a cave somewhere in southern Utah, they're a premium collegiate apparel brand based out of Indianapolis. Not only is their stuff comfy, but it's officially licensed gear. So you don't need to mess around with some of the imposters that are out there, and they don't mess around with their design selection. The home field team studies the history, traditions, and legacy of every school, takes that information, they create thoughtful designs that tell a unique story of each university. Homefield has some brand new Michigan designs that you will not find anywhere else. That's just the facts. From t-shirts to hoodies and crew necks, they have it all, so you can proudly represent the maize and blue wherever you go so if you want some brand new good looking michigan swag head over to homefieldapparel.com and use the michigan 15 for 15 percent off your order that's not just for one item that's the entire order so stock up while you have this offer again that's 15 percent using the promo code michigan15 at homefieldapparel.com all right, coming back. I want to make sure that my co-host and a man that lives on his toes is staying on his toes. We're going to do some rapid fire superlatives. One of my favorite segments to do. There's no man better equipped to handle this than you. I know you're up for the task. You ready to go, sir? Let's do it, baby. What is the best Michigan uni combo that we can go with right now? Oh, God, I have such a hot take for this. My favorite, personal favorite, is so divisive, and a lot of people hate it. I love white top, blue bottom. Like the Big Ten Championship two years ago against Iowa, chef's kiss. I don't hate it. I'm not as opposed to it as you are. Uh, blue top, blue bottom is really nice. Like that one. Uh, blue, yeah, that's really good as well. No wrong answers here. Um, I'm starting to change my tune on this. Benjamin Hall or CJ Stokes for next year? Pick one. Oh man. Um, I like, it's just such a tough balance because you have CJ Stokes a little more experience, but I like what Benjamin Hall brings to the room. He brings more of that Kalel Mullings energy where it's the big bruiser and you don't, you don't have that in Cormer Edwards per se. So I think it's a more of a change of pace than Stokes and brings more to the room immediately. What do you think? I'm a Benjamin Hall guy in this one. I'm, I'm coming around. That's why I said that to the lead. I, I was like, I, I believe in what this guy's bringing. I like the body type. I like stories coming out that he's just like a, a locker room guy that he's like in there grinding on tape. Yeah. I'm a Benjamin Hall guy. Uh, if you could put prime Chad Henney in for this season over JJ, would you do it? No. Interesting. Any, any follow up on that? Yeah. You don't need it. I mean, I don't hate the answer. Um, I think JJ McCarthy brings more to the offense with his legs. And I think this offense is predicated on running the football and having a quarterback that can do that just gives you more weapons. And without JJ running the ball, you have uh, Henny running these zone reads and different option schemes. Then they can be able to cue in on him as he's never going to run with the football. So it eliminates a threat, makes the offense a little more predictable. God, you're good. That's a great answer. Uh, look at the weapons Chad Henney had at receiver as well yeah. compared to what JJ had this year. I think that that really solidifies your answer. Uh, would you trade Cornelius Johnson for Blake Countess? Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Wow. Good, good, good on you for pulling that one. Uh, I would because I think cornerback two is such a need and I think you can get a lot out of the pass catchers, tight ends included in that. So you still have Colston Loveland, your number one receiving option. You have Roman Wilson, who by all indications is prime for a big season from the Ben Herbert report. We liked what we saw to close against TCU. And I think cornerback two has to be addressed. And if you assure that with Blake Countess, like peak Blake Countess, I mean, this defense would be literally unthrowable. If that's even a word, I'm going to make it up. 
I love it. No, that's a word now. Blake Countess really underrated with how good he was later on in his career. Stuck around in the NFL for a long time. Really solid. I think that he would come in and solidify that. Look, as much as we love Will Johnson, if you can just throw at the other guy with impunity and there's just no recourse for that, that's a problem. So I'm with you there. I think that I like the odds of Tyler Morris stepping up. Uh, Just we haven't seen anything from a quarterback number two. So I would take that trade as well. All right. Rate the danger level. One being no danger whatsoever, 10 being a five alarm fire that J.J. McCarthy has inconsistency and turnover problems in 2023. Two, I just feel very confident, like with what he did as a first year uh, with really eliminating the turnovers uh, from the large part of the season, had some growing pains in there. And I would feel it would be a lot higher if you didn't have the Ohio State tape and you didn't have the TCU resilience on top of it. Like the Ohio State tape is the tape you can just show him, like, okay, I'm all in. Because he hit the big throws when he needed to, finally had the, enough reps with the guys to understand where they like the ball, have the timing down. And against TCU, having two terrible pick sixes and still playing his ass off in that game was unbelievable. So I think it's it too. I'm just not worried about McCarthy at all. Trust the work ethic, trust the character, trust the program. Uh, I love all of that. I cannot in good conscience put it that low. I've got to put it at a four because going back and going back and watching. I mean, a four is still low. That's I mean, 50 percent is like you're completely mid. You're like, yeah, he'll probably have 20 touchdowns and seven interceptions. Um, So I'm I'm below that. I think like something I mean, I, I predicted the 35 touchdowns. So I'll go with that. So let's say 36 touchdowns and 11 interceptions. That would be about 40 percent belief you know I think that he's going to be really good but you and I have been and you in particular have been on the footwork that you go back and watch and and even in the late games against TCU now there was a clip that came out on Instagram that you and I are just salivating over of him being on the move and stopping and planting or taking the three-step drop and planting granted it's just in shorts doesn't mean that much but there's some footwork stuff that needs to be cleaned up and uh, in the first couple weeks if we see that cleaned up this is going to drop for me yeah, I think the thing is, like, I'm, you're, he knows the improvement. He's the work ethic kind of guy. That was one of our big issues with Shea Patterson that people gloss over was the dissension on the offensive staff that half of them wanted Patterson starting and half of them didn't because he spent most of the offseason, like, maybe a little too much time at the golf course. Not really the football junkie that you want. Now, that can be a cliche, but from the most important position on the field, you want that person to be obsessed with football and obsessed with improvement more, uh, more than anything. And McCarthy has that in spades. I'm with you. Uh, also, I'd like to alter my projection to 36 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I don't think he's an, he's an 11 interception. I'll say 11 was pretty. That's one a game. 11 11's a little high. 11's yeah. a little high. I don't like that. Uh, does Hans Zimmer or anyone else on the planet ever have a chance at catching John Williams as the greatest film composer of all time? Oh, I'm going to say no. Like, uh, I want to say Zipper could do it, but dude, would you look at John Williams' body of work? It is staggering. Like, the fact that you and I were talking uh, one time about it, and we're like, yeah, we got Duel of the Fates at episode one, like 30 years into the career. Just like, oh yeah, I got this one sitting in the till. Let me bring it out and make the best Saber fight of all time. Like, how much does that score elevate the Darth Maul fight scene? It's incredible, and it elevates the entire movie, that entire scene, which is elevated by the score, yeah. And then you go back, and like early in his career, he's knocking out E.T. and Jaws. Like Hans Zimmer, you go back, his best stuff is recent. So Hans Zimmer's gaining steam, but I think John Williams is uncatchable. 
Yeah, I, I do too. Like, it's like one of those, like, impossible records, like the DiMaggio hit streak and stuff like that. It's just like everyone else is fighting for second place. Like, you and I are big Jurassic Park guys. Like, just imagine getting the screenplay, like, oh, hey, we're going to go here and we're going to, you know, fight some dinosaurs. He's like, oh, okay, I got that. <laughs> so, uh, this is a bit of a hot take Jurassic Park score over the Jaws score. I'm, I'm there. You know how I feel about the Jurassic Every time I hear the Jurassic Park score, like, it just, I don't know. It's just like, it has no business being that good. Like it should be just like more tonal, basic, like tense music, kind of upbeat woodwinds, but you're getting like these horns and you're like, what are you, what are you doing? Like John Williams just cooking. It is unbelievable. Unreal. I don't know that anybody in sports has ever been as hot as that. Like, and for that longevity, there's no comparison in sports. That's what, I mean, Jerry Rice is the closest thing you can compare to John Williams in sports or Tom it, Brady. It's, it's like Jerry Rice, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, and Muhammad Ali, like conducting an orchestra. That is John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect. All right. Here's a tough one. What Michigan game that's not the 69 Michigan Ohio State game or the Bianca Patuka game would you be present for if you could be present for any Michigan game in history? any Michigan game in history probably the 97 Woodson return against Ohio State for the touchdown either that or the Desmond Howard one like I'd want to be there for an iconic moment such as that so I would pick one of those uh there's also I think the 71 game believe I'm recalling that right 71 team was nasty they only gave like nine points a game but the uh, yeah, watching one of the iconic punt returns, I think, would have to be really high up there for me. Or the game that made me a fan, like from afar, was the 03 game with Chris Perry running all over Ohio State. <clears throat> That'd be a fun one, too. A lot of good options there. I'll take any of the ones that you just mentioned. Probably one of the punt return ones would be my answer as well. Uh, take one of these players for Michigan basketball next year. Karis Levert or DJ Wilson? Oh, D, uh, DJ Wilson, just because the front court needs so much help. And I just want Terrace Reed to have his burden lightened. I think DJ Wilson could bring a nice versatility to the front court and also do a lot of things that this team desperately needs that I don't know how they're going to answer yet. So don't have a lot of Will Cheddar stock like you know, for the high end here. I'm not I'm not selling the farm on Will Cheddar stock. Let's just say that. No, no, um, you still have it, but it's like I'm not like doubling down on this. I did sell my car to buy some more Yusuf Kayat stock. So uh, really, <laughs> you, really hoping you, that pans out. What was his quote the other day? Something like, don't sleep on him or something like that. I was like, yes, I love this like phony self-belief. I, I want to believe in myself that much. It was awesome. Oh, it's great. Uh, if Devin Witherspoon came back to Illinois next year, would you trade Blake Corum for Devin Witherspoon straight up? Oh, that is, that is mean. That is really mean. Um... Oh, I just, no, no, I couldn't, I, I would, I would think about it. I would really think about it. But like with the injury history of Corm and Edwards, what Corm means to this team, like that's just like some bad juju you get for trading a player that important. I would think about it. And that's probably the most enticing player you could throw at me to do it. But no, come on. Blake Corm is like a forever Wolverine. It's tough. That's why I took him first pick overall in the spring game draft, even though I will John I knew Will Johnson strategically made sense. I was yeah. like, Blake Corum is just like this different level of player right now, like and what he means to the program, which is wild because we're about to get into our unsung moments of 2022. And so many of them didn't have Blake Corum, which was kind of a bummer on the rewatch. Yeah, I was very surprised going through these. Like how many were defensive? Like it kind of maybe just like felt like like Maybe the defense was a little underappreciated at times this season, especially in big moments. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be the bulk of this second half. Let's get into this. We both did another rewatch. We did that for you. We decided to spend our free time rewatching these games that we absolutely love. Not for us, not because we enjoy it. Um, It's because of you. Actually, no, it is 100% because I loved every freaking second of this rewatch. And I always find new things on these rewatch. And we're going to get into some of the unsung moments here, sir. So let's talk about these. So unsung moments let's kind of define that because we know there's a couple moments that get talked about so the sung moments would be like the most talked about moments that's going to be the Khalil Mullings pass the Mike Sainer still break up uh what else is in the moments that like we all remember we all talk about so like kind of setting the stage for this we came up with this concept last year and I mean think back to what we just talked about like the punt returns of Charles Woodson or Desmond Howard like what led to that yeah. punt return like where was the, what was the third down stop like think of 2021 Ohio State even the Josh Ross third and two stop to force them to punt get the ball back right away and then open up the lead and pile on to it. like everybody remembers the Hassan Haskins plays in that game and the Aiden Hutchinson plays but it's the Josh Ross plays that really win you the games so we wanted to go back again this year and dig into like the Josh Ross nuance, the play. Maybe it should be the Josh Ross unsung hero award or like Brad Hawkins because he was a guy that always flashed in these moments as well. And look at the guys that kind of went, like maybe slipped through the cracks in some of the bigger moments of the year. Yes. So I'm glad you mentioned previous winners, the Brad Hawkins strip that was against Nebraska. And then the Josh Ross, that was the tackle against Ohio state 2021, yep. right? Yep. Yes, absolutely. So those were previous winners. So I'm excited to, to litigate this with you, man. We'll come up with some, uh, I'm going to let you start, go ahead and lead with one upon this rewatch that stood out to you. Okay. I'm looking through Oh, one of my favorites. And I think we'll kind of spawned uh, you and I going back and forth about this is that let's go to the biggest game of the year. Let's go to Michigan, Ohio State, and let's go to the Jalen Harrell pass breakup because mm. the Mikey Sainer still PBU is the one that's going to go down in infamy. But Jalen Harrell, a late against Ohio State on fourth and two, teams already trailing 10 to three, and Ohio State's driving in Michigan territory right around the 35, and they opt to go for it because defense hasn't really slowed them down yet, and they have a chance to open this thing up to 17 to three when they could have kicked a field goal, just go up 13 to three. They go for it on fourth and two. Jalen Harrell's in coverage on Cade Stover. Masterful pass breakup. Denies them any points, and the offense takes back over. Great, great addition. We were talking offline in this rewatch. Somebody pops every time I do a rewatch. It was Chris Jenkins. It was Makari Page at times. Jalen Harrell really popped, and I was mostly watching the games. that Actually, I only exclusively in this rewatch watched the games that were at one point in question somewhere around the second half. Like those were the only games that I really focused on for this. And Jalen Harrell in big games showed up a lot and not just rushing the passer. In fact, not usually rushing the passer. It's doing other things that really gets me excited about Jalen Harrell. The other things that he does, the intelligence in which he plays, that was a key play. Uh, Let me stick with that same game. And this one, like this is a little more obvious. So I want to bring it up right here. Taylor Upshaw had an interception in that game. It basically ended all hope for Ohio State. Nobody really talks about it. I think we just need to talk about it a little more. I wanted to give that play some shine. This was the play where CJ Stroud tried to make something out of nothing, did a little forward shovel pass. It goes off of, I think, of Abuka's hands and right into Taylor Upshaw's hands. But the skill to make that interception and end it. Now, granted, I mean, we're getting the ball back regardless, but like, I don't want that play to get slept on. It's not going to win, but let's give him his flowers. 
No, this is a great play. It's forgotten because it's sandwiched between the two Donovan Edwards touchdown runs. That's completely why it's forgotten is it's right in the middle. And this play was pivotal. This isn't like the Macari Page one late in the game that was just kind of like salt in the wound. I mean, this really put the clamps down and let Michigan open it up again with the next run. And it was cool to see Upshaw, man, because you and I had always liked Taylor Upshaw, like always played with great effort, was an awesome rotational piece. Hope he does wonders at Arizona, especially when they play against Colorado. Uh, his tweet last week made it seem like he's a little motivated for that. So uh, it was a cool moment, especially for a senior in an upperclassman that had been here and been through the bad years of the 2020s and the dark times. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And uh, underrated there and difficult ball skill. Same with the Macari Page interception. I noticed that on both on both interceptions late in the game. Incredible ball skills on both picks. Macari Page with the one hand, Taylor Upshaw with the one hand. Yeah, yeah, both very, very good ball skills, especially Upshaw having the wherewithal to pull this one in. Um, next yeah. one for me, I'm, I'm going to go with another one that's it's not going to win, but I had to point it out because it showed growth, and that is J.J. McCarthy against Iowa. So there was a route where Ronnie Bell was running down the sidelines, and he's trying to find the soft spot in the coverage. He kind of misdiagnosed it and wants it a little bit deeper, but one of the best cornerbacks in the com- country, Cooper DeGene, is sitting there baiting the throw. Bell can't see him, but... J.J. McCarthy does, and he throws it in a spot like the pass goes incomplete and it just looks like a miss, but it avoided an interception, and that's a quick decision. That's an Aaron Rodgers kind of trait you see where it's like play's not there, pressure's coming, get rid of the ball, fight for the next down, and it really just showed a very quick diagnosis that you don't see from first-year starting quarterbacks. This was great. I remember the moment we had Clad on the call, did we not? Who called yep. it out like on the call? Yeah, which is great. That's why I love having a quarterback to diagnose other quarterbacks. Yes. He saw that and he's like, didn't get baited. So that was really good. I love that one. Yeah. And the Iowa game's a fun rewatch. Um, some of these games, you look back at the score and you're like, yeah, that was in hand. The Iowa one, a little bit dicey. Uh, let me go to another game that was a little bit dicey that we kind of forget about that I was at the Maryland game. I remember this one being a little bit suspect. So first play of the game versus Maryland. I think that we need to to give a little bit more credence to this. Once again, I'm bringing it up now because this shouldn't win. This was a mistake that they made, but we capitalized it. The opening kickoff hit Felton in the face. Matthew Hibner recovers. Next play, JJ rolls out, hits Schoonmake for a touchdown right in the corner of the end zone. So that basically means they spotted us seven points. If we didn't have that, They had the ball with three minutes, 30 seconds left in the game and drove for a touchdown. That would have been the tying touchdown, you know, instead of like them trying to fight back. Like people forget, like if we don't get spotted seven against Maryland, we're in a dogfight against Maryland. Like we're going to need a moody kick to win it at the end. Yeah, the Michigan uh, slow start against the first Big Ten opponents, a streak I hope we can break this season because the last two years they've been uh, clinchers. And it's like, I don't want want to have that kind of pain. And I'll never forget, it was one of my favorite Jared Calls uh, post-game, post-beverages. I'm never going to quote what you said on that call, but it's so funny looking back in retrospect at our conversation after the Maryland game. It was pretty rough, but I did bring up kind of trying to soften the blow of how aggressive I was with that Maryland call (laughs) that like maybe some of the problems we saw against Maryland showed their head against TCU. And uh, you're right in that it's it's a lot different what happened against TCU. But yeah, I was a little overreactive against Maryland. But if we didn't get that opening play, that is a dogfight against Maryland. Like that is a, that is a game we could have dropped. We were very sloppy in that game. That was a team too. I mean, just came in there that Maryland last year was super veteran late. And again, I've, I've been big on the Maryland last year was their year like that. Everyone's like a lot more hypes coming into this season, but that team last year was 
a lot, a lot of dog in them. And, you know, now you couple in Josh Gaddis and some more inexperience. So we'll, we'll see where it goes this season. Um, okay. Another one I want to go into, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about this in the Indiana game tied 10 to 10 following a blocked field goal. So no points, Indiana drives down the field, gets all the way down there, right towards the end of the first half, kicks a field goal and Mike Morris blocks it, stifles all momentum, keeps it level at 10 going into the break. And it's just something you don't even think about because this game went off a cliff because Michigan comes out, big Blake Corm run, touchdown. Looks like we're going to run through this team. But then all of a sudden, Mike Hart has a medical emergency and you don't know if he's going to live. You don't know if he's going to die. And football became so trivial and meaningless. And it's going to impact all these impressionable college students. And you can see it on the field. Like, what does it matter, this Indiana football game, if Mike Hart's going to like pass away or anything bad is going to happen to him further? So they're, all their thoughts are with him. So to get that block, keep it at 10-10, allow you to reset at halftime, and then come back out and reaffirm the win. with 21-0 in the, half, the second half was just a very slept-on moment that sparked the, the final victory. Yeah, I'm not going to rule this one out because this is a really good one. Um, Upon rewatch of that Indiana game, man, the dramatic shift in just overall mood in that game. It's it's really when you watch it, that really stands out. And it it did get tough. It got a little bit gritty there in the middle of that game, too. And a lot of that was due to just that gigantic shift in the team's philosophy after that. So that's a really good one. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, All right. Here's one that I want to bring up that probably shouldn't make the the final cut but i really like it because it's rod moore being god moore we're up 16 7 in the third quarter versus michigan state peyton thorne has Jaden reed dj turner does not have his head head around at all which he didn't often <laughs> um, but rod moore just comes over like immediately he first leans the opposite direction towards the other side of the field comes back has the recovery speed to get back over and help dj turner if not Jaden reed gets that they're at the like 10 yard line all of a sudden it's like 10 16 at the worst maybe 14 16 and it's really tight in that michigan state game and we're all like oh boy so this one shouldn't win i mean we ended up winning comfortably even if they got that we're gonna win that game but i want to give this one some props rod moore just doing things all over when you watch the tape this game you and i were in attendance when we saw that it was like oh okay now we're done screwing around with like the one-on-ones on the outside like we're putting god more over top of you and like it eliminated it. Like, I mean, it completely neutralized their passing attack. And that is also one of the things that makes me feel good about whether or not this team really develops a second corner. Jesse Minter's not the Don Brown stubborn type where he's going to force a square peg into a round hole. He's going to cover the guy up and help him out. And as long as Rod Moore is in the secondary, you feel good no matter who is playing quarterback number two. Rod Moore and Makari Page. I feel really good about our safety help this year. Incredibly good. Your boy, babe. Macari, this is Makari Page season for you. I'm so happy for you to get this one. Like, this has been your guy. I When he recruited in 2020, like, this man here has been proclaimed on Page Island. Like, you're finally getting your flowers. I'm I'm happy for you. Not him. You know, he can start whatever, but for you being right. Um, I just and, need him to be decent, and I and it's a win. Just, it is. Just starter level. He's been more than decent, my friend. Um. I'm going to give the other one beside, before we get into the one game where I think we're going to find a winner. Uh, we'll stick with God more when he has the back-to-back tackles uh, to force a third and four and then getting the stop on fourth and two against Iowa. Michigan's leading 20-7. to seven. Iowa's driving, kind of just like annoyingly hanging around. It was a very lethargic second half from Michigan after building a 20 to nothing lead. Kind of took their foot off the gas thinking they had him in check. And you needed to stop. Like on the rewatch, you can tell they're building a little bit momentum. And it took these back-to-back plays by Rod Moore to really just like shut the water off. 
I really like this one. Just watch this. This was the last sequence I watched before we logged in. It was the last one added to the document. And I was just like, this is underrated. It's going to get underrated because Iowa ends up committing a penalty. And Brian Ferentz shows that he's just like a dog shit offensive coordinator <laughs> during the sequence. He's just really not good in the sequence. Iowa has like 10 minutes to drive down the field. They're down 20 to seven and they are just running through the tackles, getting two yards like, and Michigan was happy to let them have it. They're like, all right, you know, you're going to eat up five minutes just trying to get into scoring position. Iowa gets into scoring position and they're very conservative again, but Rodmore is there back-to-back tackles, Reganey and Laporta. Like you mentioned, Laporta, who looks like, uh, according to early reports out of Detroit Lions camp, like he's a star. So like to be able to do that, Rodmore goes up and just bodies Sam Laporta. That was really awesome. This one deserves some flowers. It's not going to win. This is the last one that probably won't win, like you mentioned. But Rodmore, man, just flashes, flashes. It's more than flashes. He shines on tape. Yeah, Rodmore's a star. And I think like I've been the one just like softly pounding the drum like in private and a little bit in public about he's better than Dax Hill. And I think we're going to see it in spades this year as perhaps the best safety in the country, just the most complete safety of what he does in run support, what he does in coverage. Like, I think it's going to be, I might just get a jersey that says God on the back of it for him, but it might be a little too blasphemous to others. (laughs) Not for me, sir. I will understand the reference and I will agree and appreciate it. Um, All right. First one I want to maybe take off here. This is kind of like the final four. What do we got? Five here. Final five. Yeah. Uh, This is a big stop. Mason Graham, fourth and one first half against Illinois in Michigan territory. Mason Graham just destroys his man, gets through, stops the running back. This was big on fourth and one Illinois. I mean, this game was tight the entire way. We needed every stop against Illinois. Yeah, this stop here resulted in zero points, and that was big in a very, I mean, a two-point game at the end of this. So I think this is the one we can remove from this game just because it took place in the first half. Just because it's in the first half, but, like, we're not doing a ranking here. We're just trying to find maybe the top one or two. But this one might be above one of the other ones that we have here. This is a really good moment. Mason Graham, man, this just that like moment, him showing up in big moments is another reason why we took him high in the spring game draft. Like he's going to have a great season. I like you taking Chris Jenkins because, oh, boy, does that guy pop on rewatch. But Mason Graham does, too. Yeah, it's just the defensive tackle position right now. We don't even factor in the Kenneth Grant. The fact that he was number one in the actual spring draft taken by the coaches just makes you feel even better. Um, Sticking with this game, which we will for the final couple picks here, uh, I'm going to nominate one of the fourth down conversion that doesn't get talked about as much. So we talk about like the Colston Loveland third down and the, the man beater. We talk about the Isaiah Gash later. But how about the one earlier, the Roman Wilson fourth and four? It's a beautiful route, again, designed to beat man coverage. They send him in motion. McCarthy delivers a perfect ball in strike. Wilson catches it with his hands, gets up field and keeps the momentum rolling for a team with three minutes left. Michigan ultimately gets a field goal on this drive and stays alive. But what a crucial play. And like one of those first real clutch moments we saw from McCarthy. Yeah, this is a really important one. Also on rewatch, Roman Wilson had two big catches taken away by penalties where JJ is like rolling out. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is Zinter not knowing that JJ was rolling out. Easy to get a holding call when you don't know your quarterback's going to roll out. But Roman had a couple of these, actually, which is really encouraging. I know you drafted him in the spring game saying you think he's going to have a big year. I'm starting to lean into that this is a good example of why you think he might have that. Like this is a big moment for Roman and a big moment for JJ. I like this one. This is, this is a good one to make it into the final four. Um, 
All right. So let me go with Mike Sainer still here. Mike Sainer still who on rewatch is like the biggest, the big, he's the Jimmy Butler of this team. (laughs) Yes. He is for sure. The Jimmy Butler of this team, like gritty. And like when it's playoff moments, he makes the halftime speech, which we can't nominate a speech here, but that speech and then how he played in the second half against Ohio state. If we could nominate that as a moment, we need to just like, peg a little bit and come back to like put that in yellow because that's pretty important like he also was the best player on the field after making the speech but has a tackle on third and six against illinois makes it fourth and one illinois goes fast but the d-line is ready and i think the d-line drew the offsides get or gets the false start you hold him to a field goal there huge play it's fourth and one saner still holds him on an incredible tackle and then you get up to the line and our defense is ready. So this is also Jesse Minter. This is coaching. This is preparedness. But like I'm giving Mike, Mike Sander still his flowers here for just like making that, getting everybody to the line, forcing them into a field goal, because if they get the touchdown, we lose anything in Illinois is going to be a big play because of how close the score was. One of my favorite things that Jesse Minter does that was an improvement from Mike McDonald is the pre-snap recognition. Like, he is on top of it. Like, these players are ready and they play fast. You saw it several times with Michigan under McDonald in 21, especially against Michigan State. Struggle to get lined up. Like, you, how frequently would you see Aiden Hutchinson pointing to the other side of the line of scrimmage, trying to run around? Like, that happened very, very rarely compared to 21 last season. So, again, it goes to this play. Like, the team was ready. They lined up. They knew the moment, knew the situation, didn't jump which was impressive as well because you could feel all the anxiety, all the pressure building, and they say, and Illinois was the one to flinch. So, no, I love this pick. And, again, I'm here for all the Mikey praise. You and I saw this early at the spring game that year when he had his head around. We're like, he might be a guy, and he was a guy. So that's awesome. And our last one here I think could be the winner because literally the season was on the line against Illinois. So after the Roman Wilson conversion, the Michigan drive kind of sputters. You kick a field goal. You go down a point, 17-16. You need to get the ball back. You have three timeouts, and the defense forces a three and out. When Illinois had been moving the ball pretty well in the second half, forces a three and out, gets the ball back, which ultimately sets up the game-winning drive, the Isaiah Gash fourth down conversion, and the game-winning Jake Moody kick. But it is forgotten the moment this defense had to step up because a first down, you might still get the ball back, but very limited time. Two first downs, this game is over. I love this. This was what stood out to me on rewatch because obviously the moment is the moment. You know, there's no denying how tense it is, what we need to have happen in that moment. But can you pick a player from this moment? Because a lot of this is is focused on player accomplishments here. Is there a player from that moment that you're like, okay, that was the guy that made the big play? Was it Chris Jenkins? Who do you have? I think the best part about this is that it was nobody. And I think that goes to the no-star defense. I think it was everybody stepping up and doing their 111th. And it was what stood out to me because I'm watching it. I'm just like, okay, it's not this one guy. It's not like Devin Bush taking over a series. It was everybody. Like everyone was beating their man. Everyone was physical, forcing the bad throws. And it was just it's just such a moment that you forget about because you remember the moody kicks, the fourth down conversions, but this defense giving the moment here and the opportunity really stood out to me. And again, to their credit, they did the same thing against TCU. They gave the offense a chance late in the game. It just didn't happen. So again, the defense stepped up time and time again. And this moment, just everybody and not one person standing out was something to behold. 
I love it, man. This is a great choice, and I love how you explain that. That I mean, it kind of embodies what we saw last year, that this wasn't just one guy. I mean, we, we point to the secondary, and we look at Will Johnson. Like, Will Johnson wasn't the reason we succeeded last year. Mikey Sainer still wasn't the reason we succeeded last year, nor was, nor was Rod Moore. It was the combination of everybody that we had going, a lot of people doing their jobs, a lot of people that were above average at their jobs. And I think this really exemplifies that. I like the other ones that we touched on. So let's make sure that those get their flowers. Kind of like last year, we gave it to two moments. I feel like last year, didn't we? I believe so. I believe there was, I think the Josh Ross might've won out, but I mean, also any of the Nebraska force fumble was up there as well for Brad Hawkins, or even the forced fumble against Rutgers that junior Colson recovered was another one that had kind of been forgotten in the season. But I think we ended up ultimately gave it to, Josh Ross, just because of the moment, the Ohio State game, the drought and everything factored in. So this is going to be a little difficult, but while we discuss some underrated plays, which was a more important play to the Michigan season? The Mike Sainer still pass breakup or the Roman Wilson no touchdown versus TCU? Roman Wilson no touchdown because the Ohio isn't, State isn't that crazy. Even yeah, would have won it still. Like we still would have won, won that game. Even if Michigan loses, you're probably probably still getting into the playoff. So it's like it's mm-hmm. not going to have that many consequences besides the obvious rivalry ones. Yet the Roman Wilson one swung the game. And here's an interesting yep. thing. Like I wanted to point out as well, talking about this and revisiting old games. Like everyone talks about, like wanting to see the Michigan offense like open up a little bit and expand. And it's like, you know, I'm all for like connecting on the deep shots, but I never want to see this offense become pass heavy because the last two years, JJ McCarthy's highest passing yards game, Cade McNamara's highest passing yard game, both Michigan losses. Yep. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up. And honestly, this probably deserves it. Maybe not its entire podcast, but we can give 12 minutes on this. Uh, I do not care that wide receivers are like not a major part of our offense last next year. I'm okay with it. I I bet on uh, JJ McCarthy breaking the passing touchdown record because I want to see it happen. But like, if you ask me just in a bar somewhere, I'm going to be like, yeah, he probably has like 27 touchdowns. We're probably going to run the ball a ton. And that's probably exactly what we want to do. I don't think it's good for this offense if he's trying to break the record. So I agree with you. This is a bit of an aside, but like the offense is what it is right now. We should enjoy and appreciate it. And like, so long as we have two healthy running backs that are Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards, we're, we're favored against everybody. We we meet next year. That's not Georgia. Yeah, and this offensive line, like, imagine going to Lincoln Riley and be like, you guys need to be more physical and pound the rock 30 times a game. (laughs) Like, your strength is your strength, and I'm glad this team is theirs because it bodes well to long-term success. So as long as both backs can stay healthy. And on the rewatch, it's more chemistry than, like, talent. Like, some's on the receivers getting open, but you and I were both, like, kind of, like, amused, like, sadly, at how bad Andrew Anthony is on rewatch. But a lot of it is just chemistry issues between the quarterback and the receivers, which you just anticipate to be rectified his second year as a starter yeah that's why you and i as much as we'd love to bring in a like if you could bring anyone back bring in a nico collins i think the identity of this team like it'd be better bring back a blake countess which was the example i brought up earlier that like we would love to have it would it would really change things for jj to have that kind of an outlet like that that sort of like safety valve that's yeah. a Nico Collins. But like a second corner is more valuable to this team right now. I'm sorry. Yeah, w- look at just, I mean, wins above replacement. Like at the cornerback, you feel good. Like Mikey Sainer still playing the slot aside. Will Johnson, and then it's like, 
I don't know, Amarian Walker, Jaden McBurrows. And you talk about pass catchers, not just receivers. You feel great about Colston Loveland. You feel solid about Roman Wilson and Cornelius Johnson. And then there's a bunch of names up there of guys that can step up. But again, this offense isn't predicated around having that. You don't need that when your strength is in the backfield. You just need somebody serviceable out there that can make the occasional big catch, but more or less can block their ass off on the perimeter. Yeah, and I did bring this up. I don't want to get too deep into this because it's time to close out, but is Michigan really not a great place if you're a five, five-star wide receiver to come to? Like the, You wrote a really great article about the best incoming freshman into the Big Ten that I really enjoyed, and I thought about that four-star receiver from Nebraska that you mentioned. That guy's going to be a focal point of their offense. If you're a four-star receiver coming to Michigan right now, you're probably not seeing the field. Like, honestly, look at the just look at the history of it. Like, we're hoping Tyler Morris can see the field this year. Not a true freshman. Like, we're hoping some like somebody like Darius Clemens, not a true freshman, can even see the field. Like, we ask a lot of our wide receivers at Michigan, and a lot of it is very fundamentally sound football play, which requires blocking, which requires getting off of the line and, like, getting your hands in the right position. It's a lot, man. Yeah, it is. But it's like that also comes with, like, the counterbalance of, this is the place to come if you are a quarterback that wants a protection, if you want to be an offensive lineman, especially if you want to be a running back, because this team is going to have, I mean, I think if this offense has a little more balance next year, all that requires is just connecting on the missed deep shots. Like it doesn't need to be a fundamental overhaul because that's just dumb. You and I were here for the 2018, 2019 of we need to modernize. We need to modernize. Like, and then we changed and the offense got worse. So we had Josh Gaddis. And it's like, you watch the 2018 offense. Like what, what, what was so wrong? Like, why were we so upset with certain things here? So it's like, just because like you're kind of used to it, it's like a relationship and it's like, man, what, this girl, she's looking, she's looking okay over there. It's like, it's one of those, like the flirty eyes. And it's like, you need to remember what you have. Yeah. She's looking okay over there, but is she actually, oh, looks like she's secretly very racist. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't know Steer if clear. this is the girl from, but she's very attractive. Okay. Um, before we go, I wanted to get this take from you though. Um, so since like we, we both kind of agree that the wide receiver position may be being over discussed and the cornerback two position is a bigger need. What would you describe this concept that upon rewatch, I know you see where when we need a big first down, we find a way to get a tight end across the middle. What is that concept? How would you describe that? And like, what is that going to be for this offense? How important do you see that being with two tight ends that are probably better pass catching threats than our, than our wide receivers? Colston Loveland is going to eat in this offense. I see you see a lot of it because a lot of teams run man defenses against Michigan because they kind of like to cheat their safeties up and load the box. So you're going to see a lot of man looks. So they're going to run a lot of man beaters. And one of the best targets of a good man beater is a tight end because you're going to probably get matched up on a, tight, a, a linebacker, somebody that's really slow, and no one can cover Colston Loveland like that unless you're like a Nicobe Dean type cut from that cloth. You're not going to cover him in space. So I think he's going to have a monstrous season this year, and that could be opening up the offense in and of itself, just connecting on that because I think Loveland, he, he's easily the best tight end talent since Jake Butt, but it could go even further back than Full that. Stop. Yeah. Full stop.
Yep, I agree with that. That's awesome. I love that breakdown because, uh, dude, you've been grinding. You're on 1969 tape currently. You've got me in on the Tom Curtis tape, so <laughs> dude, we're going, we're going back. Tom Curtis tape is awesome. Like for anybody that wants to go back and miss Michigan history, I highly recommend some Tom Curtis tape. It is fantastic to watch. So if we could get anybody on this team, it'd be Charles Woodson. Is Tom Curtis too? Absolutely. Here or his uh, corner mate because his corner mate, uh, Barry Pearson, was an excellent punt returner. So we kill two birds with one stone and fill that in. Uh, I talked to you offline in the 69 game. Barry Pearson had three picks against Ohio State and like a 65-yard punt return down to the one. So it's like kind of like the signature punt return against Ohio State kind of started in 69 with Pearson before it really elevated with Howard and Woodson. But, dude, if you put Tom Curtis on this team, dear God, I would be so excited. (laughs) My God, I love this. This is the new vein of our podcast, talking about things that no one living has witnessed. (laughs) (laughs) Talking talking about the great war with them, you know? I just want to get Tom Curtis on the podcast and get his take on, like, crypto. (laughs) Your take on crypto and also the uh, second atomic bomb that it need to be dropped. Also, Tom Curtis could probably still beat my ass. Like I've seen pictures of him like in, in college. He already looked like he was a grown man. So I'm sure now he would just still pummel me. I guarantee it. Oh, man, this was a fun discussion, sir. Always love this one. Uh, coming up on Out of the Blue, we have agreed to a crossover pod with our boys at the Big House Bleachers pod. Looking forward to that. I'm looking for a draft. We'll see. We're going to do some uh, offline discussion, but I want to get a draft going. I want to draft against somebody other than you for a change. I know. Just get some parody in here because you and I know each other so well. And it's like we can text offline and have like different strategies to get in the other's head about certain things. But like them, they come in kind of fresh, like either that or a good power rankings. Again, I really enjoyed our power rankings discussion last week. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. What about a you and me versus them draft? I don't know if they're ready for that smoke. I don't know if they're ready for that. I know, but are you ready to put them down to where they belong as far as Michigan football knowledge and we just put them in their place? I mean, Matt and Michael, I mean, the challenge has been laid, so we'll see if they respond to it. They're they're man enough to step up to this. Respond in kind if you're open to this. Us versus you, we'll put it out to a debate on your site and our site. Ooh, baby. <laughs> we'll just do it. We'll just like throw him a uh, throw him a curveball. Be like, "All right, we're going to rank Michigan fullbacks and 1980s film editors. I hope you're ready." <laughs> Best scores of 1964. Are you ready? <laughs> you guys been grinding sound and music tape? We have. What's your Dustin Hoffman ranking for 1971 to 73? I want you to compare John Voight's performances in Midnight Cowboy and Heat. What really separates them? Where's the nuance? <laughs> Eric All is a freshman versus Sylvester Stallone in 1987 in an arm wrestling match. Are you prepared? <laughs> who's going to win that all right sam laporta eric all take on carl weathers and schwarzenegger who wins in checkers <laughs> <laughs> i love it want to give a shout out to uh reed thank you for reaching out to me on twitter saying that you enjoyed the podcast a uh, little bit of a bielma drop for you as we're closing this out that brett bielma this is actually very literally known nobody knows this he has above his bed a signed portrait painted by Salvador Dali of a Johnsonville brat roasting at a perfect sear on a grill. That was sitting above his bed. That was good. Also, uh, shout out Matt sent me an email about our uh, Ben Affleck discussion and uh, wanted us to bring up this boiler room speech. Doesn't go on the Mount Rushmore of movies, but as far as like Ben Affleck moments, the boiler room speech is as good as it gets. 
that was a miss by us for not at least mentioning it though, because that is good. I mean, and we're both, we're both Rosillo guys and like, that's, that's a part of his whole shtick. So should have been mentioned. It's a part of our scripture. So that's on us, you know, we'll do better. All right, guys, that's going to do it for out of the blue. Make sure you like share, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Apple music, or wherever you can follow us on Twitter at maze and brew. I'm Jared. That's Andy. This is out of the blue. We'd like to remind you that wherever you go, go blue. Oh.